Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. For years, there's a personal family story that I've always wanted to investigate. Um, my ancestors on the Allure side, uh, for several generations, worked in the Canadian uh, timber industry. And um, it, it, was, um, it was known that they logged in um, the region of northern Ontario that is now Algonquin Park. Several, several family members have been interested in this, but chiefly probably my, my uh, elder cousin, uh, Paul Allure, who is the eldest son of my, my dad's brother. Um, in fact, when he was a teenager, he wrote uh, a high school paper on this, which he gave me a copy of. Uh, called uh, the Gilmore Era, the, um, the Gilmore is a lumber company from the turn of the century. Uh, he got a twenty-eight out of thirty on it, and the teacher wrote, "Very good. It could have been done with a little more care." <laughs> I've read it. It's really good. It's really well sourced. Um, uh, used Golden Encyclopedia. And, a local Trentonian newspaper, etc. Um, good job, Paul. Anyway, so so Paul um, had a cottage, um, like just on the um, on the border of Algonquin Park, and so he's explored this region quite a quite a bit over the years. And he invited me and my my daughters to come up. Um, and go on a uh, canoe trip with him in exploration, seeking to find the remains of an old abandoned lumber camp. With all good stories, there are three parts to the story, beginning, middle, and end. Um, so we're going to tell this one in three installments. This is Canadian Timber Trilogy. Like I said, in, in the summer of uh, 2017... My uh, elder cousin Paul invited me up to his cottage to begin this journey. So we drove up uh, f from the United States um, to um, his cottage, which is, as, as I say, um, uh, on, a, on a beautiful lake uh, just on the border of the uh, exterior of um, the large um, provincial park known as Algonquin Park. What does the red light mean? I used to know, but now I don't. Before proceeding, I should tell you at least what it was we were in search of, what our nature of our exploration was all about. And in, in order to do that, I need to tell you a little bit about the history of the Canadian lumber industry. And in order to do that, I have to tell the story of the Gilmore Lumber Company. 
Gilmore Lumber Company was one of the giants of the Canadian timber industry. And uh, their involvement in lumbering uh, began quite modestly in 17, the 1790s in the area of uh, uh, Glasgow, Scotland, where uh, Alan Gilmore Sr., and stay with me because there's several Allens in this story. So Allen Sr., in the late 1700s, he starts a small timber merchandising business. In uh, 1804, he enters into a partnership with his two cousins, uh, John and Arthur, and they form this company called uh, Pollock, Gilmore and Company. And Pollock, Gilmore and Company become ship owners and they start importing products in, into Europe and the Baltic region. The, the Gilmore Lumber Companies, now they, they, they first get established in Canada uh, in a branch at Douglastown, New Brunswick, near the mouth of the Miramichi River in 1812. And subsequently, Gilmore opened a sawmill in Trois-Rivières, Quebec. Um, by the 1840s, the company splits with brothers Alan Jr., John and David operating the Quebec City branch and a, a younger Alan Gilmore, who's like a cousin running the Montreal branch under the name of Gilmore and Company. Now, they established shipbuilding yards in Quebec City and St. John, New Brunswick, and in the uh, Miramichi region of New Brunswick. By the 1840s, they commanded a fleet of 130 commercial vessels, and they're one of the largest shipping operations in the world. In 1852, Gilmore and Company constructed a sawmill at the Trent Port, located along the Bay of Quinte, which is now Trenton, Ontario. Over four decades, the mill would grow to be the, the largest sawmill in the world. Um, and there's, an, there's a, an account of the mill in the book of When Giants Fall, the Gilmore Quest for Algonquin Pine that says, quote, The main sawmill stood on the southwestern part of the property, two and one-half stories high. It measured some 30 meters wide and 43 meters long. Piling grounds of lumber were situated to the east and north, and the shipping docks to the south, with railway tracks providing access for both areas from the mill, um, and along these horses hauled carloads of lumber. By the late 1800s, most of the Scottish and Quebec branches of the Gilmore operation were closed. And at this point, I have to introduce you to our main character in this story. Uh, and his name is David Gilmore. Uh, in 1879, David Gilmore who was born in Scotland in 1851. He's the son of John Gilmore. In, uh, in 1879, at just the age of 29, he takes over the management of the, the Trenton operation, the, the big mill on the Bay of Quinty. And though Gilmore Lumber had operated in Trenton since 1852, David Gilmore was the first partner to take up a permanent residence in Trenton. He moved into this mansion, um, this very mansion at the top of Dundas Street, uh, known as Prospect House, and had this commanding view of the town and the bay and his mill operation at the foot of Dundas. Um, and because he was the town's leading industrialist, uh, industrialist um, he also became, uh, you know, the town's leading benefactor. In winters, he served as president of the curling and tobogganing cl uh, clubs. And in the summer, he, he led the cricket teams and the rowing clubs. Uh, he donated the land for the town's first uh, skating rink and curling rink. 
Um, and in, um, in 1885, uh, the Gilmore Fire Brigade Band was established. And this was a big deal. Um, the, 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 you know, the Millworker Band would have played local functions, but also events um, across um, southern, southern Ontario. So, so David Gilmore, uh, you know, emerges as this kind of, you know, you can see him kind of like Charles Foster Kane at the, at the top of, in Prospect House at the top of Dundas Street, gazing down on his empire. He's cornered, you know, Trenton is, is definitely a kind of a Bedford Falls kind of town. So it's, if, if Trenton's Bedford Falls, David Gilmore in some likes is, you know, Henry S. Potter. Um, he's, he's seen both as, uh, as, as a benefactor, but also as a potentially a capitalist exploiting the resources and people of the town potentially. And he's always seen in these two lights, um, ran for local office, obviously to, you know, try and sway influence, et cetera. Um, but you know, with that, I think comes um, because of his drive and determination. Uh, great innovation starts to um, transform the, the town and his operation. His, his his mill, the lumber mill, as we say, it grows to be the largest in the world. It's a state of the art, highly mechanized operation. Uh, in the 1880s, the town's first telephone system. Uh, is installed at the mill. In 1882, the rail line um, was the rail uh, line in the in the timber yards is connected uh, north a couple of miles to the Grand Trunk Railway. Um, and and after several fires in the mill, of course, if you're a timber mill, you're going to have you're going to experience uh, hardships like fires. So. Gilmore installs a very modern sprinkler system to protect his asset. He owned over 700 tenement houses uh, in the town of Trenton for his employees, which were situated just at the base of Dundas, uh, adjacent to the mill and, and behind the mill. Um, and to power his operations, uh, Gilmore built one of the world's first hydroelectric uh, power plants. Like most lumber barons uh, of that era, uh, Gilmore and Company received most of its product from the northern timber limits of what is now the uh, Algonquin Park region. The trees would be felled in the forest by these by men uh, living in work camps, uh, m mostly French Canadians, then floated down uh, the regional waterways of the Kawatha Lake region to their final destination, the Gilmore Mill, along the Trent River at the mouth of the Bay of Quinty. And from here, the timber would be processed at the mill, then loaded onto ships that would carry the lumber along the St. Lawrence Seaway to destinations uh, in the United States, if you follow the uh, Great Lakes, and to Europe, if you follow um, the St. Lawrence out to the Atlantic Ocean. But after 40 years of constant harvesting, the limits were becoming exhausted. And part of the problem was the size of the Gilmore operation in Trenton. In the March 1888 issue of Canadian Lumberman, uh, a writer comments, uh, You think you have big mills in the United States, but the best of them dwindle into comparative insignificance alongside the Gilmore Mill, which has a capacity of 900,000 feet per day. <laughs> the... the, the <laughs> <laughs> the truth was that the Gilmore Mill um, hadn't run anywhere near to full capacity in some years. And and many smaller mills in the region produced more lumber 
and were more profitable. Situated in the remote northern interior, the um, this prized uh, lumber berth the, uh, in the was in the Algonquin Highland Forest, and um, the Ontario government decided to put it up for auction in October of eighteen ninety two. Now, when they did that, they wouldn't they wouldn't sell the land; they would sell the rights to harvest the land for a certain finite period. I think I think you got like a 20-year lease on them. I know the Gilmore purchases that we're talking about here extended to about 1910. So this, this, this auction, which was very, very important and prominent, was held in Toronto uh, at the old Parliament buildings. And a little unusual, David Gilmore attended the auction along with his brother, Alan, and David decided to handle the the bidding for the firm personally, um, which kind of tipped his hand, right? Um, he's, um, uh, he might think that that was um, showing how serious he was, but it probably revealed to other bidders uh, how potentially desperate he was. And when the uh, when this auction ends, um, uh, 1,650 square kilometers of virgin pine had been sold for $2,308,475. David Gilmore was the biggest spender purchasing uh, 225 square kilometers of contiguous land along the northern Peck Township, which is... In Canoe Lake, that is, uh, excuse me, in Algonquin Park, that is the Canoe and Joe Lake region. But at a price of uh, $703,875, many believed David Gilmore to have been foolish to have handled this bidding himself and uh, speculated that he overpaid for the timber rights. Now, we come to the Shakespearean point of this story. It's, it's kind of like King Lear meets the Merchant of Venice um, in its uh, ambition and insanity. So sh- shortly after this auction, all the winning bidders, right, they'd aggressively began to set up these lumber camps in the Algonquin Highland Forest, right? They're they're racing against time to establish camps, to fell the timber, you know, process it, and, you know, churn money for their operations. So Gilmore establishes a, a main depot at Tea Lake. Uh, there are several shanty camps along the company's limits and he eventually will, eventually he'll have a mill on Canoe Lake in the village of Moet, but we'll get to that. And um, for for people who are from the Ontario region, um, you're probably going to geek out about all the place names here that we're going to get to next. For anyone not familiar with it, just hang in there. It's not that important. All, all you have to know geographically is when we're talking up and when we're talking down, and I'll kind of talk you to it. Um, so he's, he, 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 you know, establishes this camp, uh, you know, very anxious um, to, to uh, reap the benefits of the quarter of a million dollars he spent. But a major obstacle quickly becomes apparent. Uh, so Gilmore, he needs to get these logs to... Trenton, where his mill is, um, and Canoe and Tea Lakes, where he has these camps, they they did flow into the Oxtongue River, um, which was a little further south, but Oxtongue flowed in the wrong direction. It, it flows like southwesterly into Lake of Bays and, and ultimately to Georgian Bay. So it's 
it's going west when he needs to go east. So, so he needs this water transport that's going to go like southeasterly into the, the Trent River system. And Gilmore's solution was this ingenious piece of environmental engineering. Um, so he, he, he will, does drive his logs down southwest, uh, southerly to uh, Oxtongue and then to like a holding bay at Lake of Bay, uh, Lake of Bays. But once there, near this little village of Dorset, um, rather than allowing them to flow further southwest, he creates a diversion. And what he does is um, uh, he decides he's going to lift his logs up a hill overland 36 meters from Lake of Bay and carry them across land 1,800 meters to another lake, Raven Lake, because from Raven Lake, uh, everything can float southeasterly all the way down to the Trenton Mill. Now, the system Gilmore employed was the construction of a tramway. Um, so at the, as we say, at the base of Lake of Bays, uh, near Dorset, Gilmore, he constructs a jack ladder, which is a conveyor mechanism. You know, you have like a steam pump house, which turns a wheel, which um, carries the logs up the hillside, you know, all kind of like lubricated by water. And then at, at the top, Gilmore, then he constructs like a, a log slide, like these huge flumes filled with uh, water that would float the timber uh, down to a dam. Once at the dam, there's a second jack ladder to, you know, push them along and they carry the logs to the mouth of Lake Raven. Now, Things like jack ladders and and log slides, uh, uh, these were these were not I, uh, new ideas. Um, you know, uh, Gilmore had had employed them at other um, lumber operations in southern Ontario, and, and others had used them too. Um, you know, he'd been using them for decades. But the Gilmore's David Gilmore's feat of engineering genius was putting these two existing technologies together. So, you know, when you think of a tramway, I guess you, th you think of a, a, a subway or a metro or a train. Well, it wasn't really that. What, what it was was a, a large, I mean, it was just think of the, the flume ride. We've all been on, the, there's one at Disney World. Right. <laughs> I can't remember what it's named. There's, there's another one. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's called the Monty or what at, the, at La Ronde in uh, Montreal. We've all been on those rides where you get in the plastic log shaped car and, and you float along a flume. That, that's essentially what the Gilmore's jack ladder system was. Now, this tramway, although ingenious, it was expensive to construct and maintain. And although it was mechanized, the operation required over a hundred men to operate the engines and monitor the progress of the transport of the logs along this eighteen hundred meter journey. And um, like Gilmore again established, he you know he installed a telephone system along the route so you could monitor it from the pump house at uh, Lake of Bays all the way to the Raven Lake operation. Um, you know, one, one of the major obstacles was just the sheer distance of the journey. I mean, navigating the Ontario waterways, it, you know, under normal conditions, it could take a, a drive, you know, 445 kilometers to travel from uh, Algonquin Highlands to Trenton under, under normal conditions. Um, 
But adding the challenges of the tramway, that, I mean, that could that could add an additional, like it could take two years uh, normally to uh, to do a log drive from Algonquin to Trenton. The tramway could add an additional two years. So uh, like a log felled at Canoe Lake in 1894 might not reach the Trenton Mill until 1898. And of course, you, you know, with this, uh, you can see the implications. I mean, many of the logs would rot, you know, um, if if they they sat at the side frozen over the winter or were, were stagnating, stagnating, they would rot. In some conditions, they'd, they'd sink. And, and because Algonquin Forest was so far north, you know, something they didn't calculate was the, the spring thaw occurred much later in the season. So this shortened the time available for summer log drives before the waterways began to freeze again in the fall and you were you know you you were left waiting another 6 to 8 months and and finally to make matters worse much of the pine cut from the auction tracks that Gilmore purchased were of poor quality it was thought that his lumber inspectors did not do a very thorough job of examining the stock before purchase so this the Gilmore's tramway operates for only two seasons before he abandons the project in uh, 1896. And in uh, something that comes to mind in this is, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers the film of Fitzcarraldo uh, tells the story of a, a like a Irish and industrialist in Peru, um, uh, you know, at the turn of the century who tries to uh, transport a steamship over a, a, a steep hill in the Peruvian jungle to the Amazon basin, where he thinks there's this um, trove of um, rubber trees. He stars uh, Klaus Kinski, famously directed by a uh, Werner Herzog, the documentary on the film becomes more infamous than the film itself because uh, true to Herzog's film style, he he literally attempts to recreate what happened uh, allegedly at the turn of the century. He he tries by hand and, you know, with natives pulling ropes to literally bring the ship over the hill to the waterway, this act of insanity on Herzog's part, rumored to have permanently destroyed his relationship with Klaus Kinski. Um, you know, the act of a madman. And, um, we, you know, we always kind of think of the Scots and someone like Gilmore is reserved and, um, you know... Um, <clears throat> not not emotional. This must have been uh, to per pursue this quest. Must have been absolute insanity, and then to to abandon it all, you know, to roll the dice like that, and then abandon it all, and move on to the next, and what I would believe is the final project, the final gasp of the Allure Company must have been something extraordinary to uh, witness. The last act of this fascinating tragedy, this Canadian Fitzcarraldo plays, plays out like this in the, in the spring of 1896. Um, so the tramways lost, um, David Gilmore and his brother, they decide to construct a mill at the Mowat village on Canoe Lake. I guess the idea being, you know, if we can't bring the lumber to the mill, we'll bring the mill to the lumber. And uh, his timing was pretty good. Uh, by that point, um, there's another industrialist and lumberman named John Booth 
who um, who owned a, a, a railway, um, the Ottawa, Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway, and it it was about to reach, you know, as they constructed, it was about to reach the outskirts of Canoe Lake. Um, all Gilmore had to do was build a two-kilometer rail spur um, from the Mowat Mill up to the north to the Booth Rail Station. And um, all the finished lumber from the new mill could be transported out west to Perry Sound or east to the Ottawa River. By the spring of 1897, Gilmore and Company's new mill was operating at Canoe Lake and to, to construct it, the Gilmore salvaged used parts from his former projects. Um, he, uh, eight of the boilers and the saws and other equipment f- from the Trenton mill were repurposed, which, you know, the mill on the Bay of Quinty was, by, by this point was sitting largely idle. Uh, the boiler and the two steam engines left over from the tramway project were shipped overland from Lake of Bays to Canoe Lake. And uh, the the village at Canoe Lake, uh, it was named the Moet after an uh, influential politician at the time. You know, it was this real company operation. Um, there were pro- approximately 500 workers at the mill with a, a hospital, horse stables, a warehouse, cookhouse, storehouses, offices, um, mill workers' houses, boarding houses, and a cemetery. Uh, and, uh, I mean, beyond that, to show how, how serious they were, David Gilmore constructed two summer homes on an island one mile from the shores of Mowat. Which, this island is now known as Gilmore Island. And um, the two houses, um, he occupied one and his brother Alan uh, occupied the others. Uh, these were very elegant two-story homes, and they still exist to this day. Uh, it's rumored that um, at some point Alan and, and David got into a feud and they constructed a fence right down the middle of the island, which separated the two the two homes. And inc- incidentally, on our canoe journey with my cousin Paul, that was our quarry. Uh, Moet Village, what we were going after, we were sinking, seeking to find the remains of the mill in the village. Um, but to, to round out the, the Gilmore story, I don't want to leave him hanging and tell you what happened to the Gilmores. Um, the, the operation at Canoe Lake had barely lasted for five seasons, and, and mainly because that, that, at that time the, the nation was coming out of a major depression and, um, and Gilmore was uh, facing mounting debts. And he paid too much for the, the lumber stock and he could never, he could never hold it together. Um, by September 1901, the mill ceases operations and all the, the men, the 500 men, come home to Trenton. And uh, David Gilmore stayed on to witness the demise of his lumber empire in Trenton for another four years. In 1903, tragedy strikes when David's brother, Alan Gilmore, dies after and this is from the coroner, accidentally shooting himself in the back of the head while preparing for a fishing trip. Uh, and it's largely rumored that, um, I mean, perhaps one version of it is is he, he goes up to the attic to get his tackle and a, a shotgun and the shotgun accidentally goes off in the attic. Uh, another version of it is that, uh, I mean, obviously... Um, probably faced with mounting debts and pressure, Alan Gilmore, um, who's, you know, the less dominant of the brothers, uh, couldn't handle the the pressure and took his own life. And the coroner wrote what he wrote so that the family could save face. In 1905, David Gilmore moves his family to Buffalo, New York, where he purchases a door factory and finally, in 1909, the the big sawmill on the shores of the Trent River and the Bay of Quinte, Quinte was torn down. The um, the last place we're able to track uh, David Gilmore is 
actually in in New York City, um, he um, in the 1930s census, uh, which I think is the last uh, census that we have, he's living in New York City. Uh, he would be in his 80s at this point um, with his wife and two daughters. The year prior to our voyage to Algonquin Park, I'd taken my daughters to Trenton to the site of the big mill on the Bay of Quinty, which is now parkland. Um, the, all that remains of that empire, um, the, the Gilmore office at the foot of Dundas is still there, as is... Um, the home at the top of the hill um, prospect remains at the top of the hill. And then, as I say, the following year, in the summer of uh, 2017, is when we uh, went to Canoe Lake and the village of Mowat. And getting there is quite a pilgrimage. Uh, you first have to get to Algonquin Park, um, and then you go to the Portage store and you rent or you bring your canoe. And I think that day there were, there were four canoes. It was Paul and his daughter and two friends of Paul and my eldest daughter and me in one canoe and my middle and youngest daughter in the fourth canoe. And you have to paddle about uh, two miles uh, along the lake and in open waters at some point, which can be quite rough and treacherous. Um, and where Moet stood, there is a large rock uh, boulder jutting out um, from the land, and that's the access point where you pull up your canoe. And that was the site of of the mill. So we went. The, uh, the The foundation of the mill is still there. You know, you can still find uh, the stone foundation and the brick pillars, um, uh, as well as the um, the remains of the the chip uh, builder, the circular chip builder was still there. Um, kind of looks like a um, farm silo, but it was actually used for uh, burning debris. You know, obviously a lot of um, like the brick piles and uh, eye bolts are there. Um, you know, the large uh, metal pins that were held to, you know, used to hold the foundation. The cemetery is still there up the hill. Um, and in order to get that, it's it's pretty rough interior. It's rough uh, brush in many places. Um, but the old rail spurs uh, that once connected um, to the, uh, the train station two kilometers away now provide pathways. Of course, all the rail spurs would have been uh, ripped up and repurposed um, Mostly everything was repurposed, although, although a requirement of, of Gilmore getting the, uh, the timber rights was that when they left, they needed to, uh, to take everything uh, with them because it was then it was, I believe it was native land and, and jointly park land. Um, and, uh, but of course they didn't. They, anything they could sell, they took with them. But largely everything else got uh, abandoned or repurposed. So a lot of those, uh, a lot of those, um, you know, mill buildings around that village are now cottages. Um, the the most interesting thing that is still there. So on our way out from, you know, making this pilgrimage to Mowat, we we passed an island and there was a family. Um, you know, 
in their cottages in this island and something very familiar from the past um, was looking down at us. It was two what would be cottages, but, uh, you know, at the turn of the century were two beautiful homes uh, owned by two brothers. And my my cousin uh, rather boldly said, is this Gilmore Island? And the family said, yes, it is. Would you like to come in and have a look? <laughs> so we stopped um, and we, we had a look. And I'll, uh, the, the family most graciously uh, showed us around uh, both buildings, the, the, the one home belonging to Alan, the other one belonging Almost. to David. Grandfather, great-grandfather was paddling by on a canoe trip and he mm. saw the buildings and... Uh, Inquired with the government, so these were mm-hmm. the first lease, first lease, mm-hmm. leases in Algonquin. Ross, wow. his, his father-in-law has been yeah. in his family for 115 yeah. years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Rica, Built yeah. in the 18, 1894, I think. 1894. What history? And the yeah, governors were bankrupt. Now, I, I believe what they said was their, uh, the father-in-law lived in one for the summers, or in the. the the family lived in the others, family with That's children. Thing, eh? So they call this Pine Alley, and then when the, when the early periods uh, were here, there. they had uh, Sunday service. They had uh, they would sing hymns out there and stuff, yeah. and they set up badminton. There's pictures of the women in skirts playing badminton. And yeah. like I think that. they said they could they they open the cottage up every year in uh, in April and could stay as late as November before they had to leave. The owner states that they just re-upped the rights for another 20 years. Um, Canadian government is not giving away um, 100-year rights anymore. I think I think there's a, a great willingness uh, to, uh, you know, it's it's called Algonquin Park for a reason, right? It's it's indigenous land, and I think there's there's a will by some to have it all returned to to nature and uh, to get the uh, you know to to allow those um, when the political will is there to allow those leases to expire and to let everything return um, to uh, again virgin pine forest it was David and David and Alan Paul pictures of the Gilmore brothers I've never seen a picture of David Gilmer, ever. Because even when you go to the logging museum, they spend very little time talking about the Gilmores. It's all yeah. about uh, John Booth, I think yeah, the same yeah, that's the true. They don't talk about the Gilmores. Logged uh, the park, so. Yeah. Jeez. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting story. Like, just the, the sluices they built. Yeah. And, like, it really was technologically impossible yeah. what they yeah. tried to do, but it's... Very ambitious. Yeah. You're, you're the one that's I'm on the lore. Yeah, so our our great great grandfather worked for the Gilmores at Canoe Lake. Making our way down to the docks and back to our canoes, our gracious guides uh, of Gilmore Island explained to us uh, some of the treacheries and dangers that could occur uh, in in life along the shores of Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park. Yeah. Well, we've pulled so many people out of this lake. Like, my wife pulled people out of this lake, or two guys... They were hypothermic. Oh, they were wow, so geez. close to dying that they had to take all their clothes off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and my wife's friends had to yeah. Yeah, bear hug them. They were throwing up and their oh, eyes were going back wow. in their heads. And so the amount of people we pulled out of the lake, like if, you know, not that we're lifeguards, but here. Oh, if you're here. Exactly. Yeah. Like two years ago, we had somebody tip in the spring and they were so cold. Yeah. They went up to our tool shed yeah. and they were, my father in law has a, a horn for bears, you know, yeah. like one of those diesel horns. Yeah. And they were just, yeah, just anybody, anybody to come yeah. help them. And one of our neighbors heard them, and yeah. 
got them into some warm blankets, got them back. The northern lakes of Canada are indeed dangerous places. I guess I neglected to tell you that there's a murder mystery at Mowat Village on the shores of Canoe Lake. And that'll have to wait until Act 2. Who killed Tom Thompson? This has been Who Killed Teresa? In in addition to my cousin's paper, the Gilmore Era, Paula Lore's paper, of which um, Mr. Pitts wasn't in favor of, but I'm quite fond of, I used three sources um, for today's episode. One is uh, S. Bernard Shaw's book, uh, Canoe Lake, Algonquin Park. There is the Bible on all things Gilmore, When Giants Fall, the Gilmore Quest for Algonquin Pine by Gary Long and Randy Whiteman. And then more recently, in 2015, Mary Garland um, wrote the book with incredible graphics in it. It's produced by the Friends of Algonquin Park. It's called Algonquin Park's Moet Little Town of Big Dreams. I mean, amazing photographs, amazing uh, drawings and diagrams of the layouts of the the mill, the village, etc. I wouldn't have been able to put this together without the assistance of these three books. If uh, you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. Uh, we are on social media at, I'm personally on Twitter at JusticeGuy, at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. And um, specific to the podcast, uh, there's a Twitter handle at Teresa Lore, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. Website is TeresaLore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A. A-L-L-O-R-E dot com. And also there is a Facebook page specific to the podcast called Who Killed Teresa? The Podcast. And you can find us there, as I always do. Um, they, a, lot of, um, a lot of visual materials for this episode. I will put them up. And then we are one-third done. Uh, and I will put something up shortly on part two which is about the um, potential murder of Canadian artist Tom Thompson. And we'll conclude uh, with our third act. Um, And I'm not telling you what the third act is yet, but um, you'll just have to wait and see. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City, and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS.